welcome once again to Father's Pitzer's Universe at the very busy intersection where faith and reason intersect and sometimes collide. I'm Doug Keck, the gatekeeper here on the mothership where Mother Angelica began it all back in 1981. Your questions are central to the program, so send them to us at spitzersuniverse at EWTN.com. And just a reminder, we do use them on the program, so send them on to us. Check out all the Father Spitzer's websites, thematchescenter.com, and we've also got the purposefuluniverse.com and spitzercenter.org. And Father Spitzer's Universe is always available on our EWTN YouTube channel and our EWTN On Demand page. And while you're at it, going to our On Demand page on our website, the Vatican Archive Special is now posted there. The Library of the Pope is a very, very popular, popular program with our own Father Mitch, who takes you on a tour of the Vatican Apostolic Library, which contains some of the most valuable treasures of all human history. See it now and for free, 24-7, seven days a week, on demand on EWTN. And we're continuing on with the Father's everlasting book, The Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church. It's available now through our EWTN religious catalog, of course. I assume you picked it up already. If not, you should. And if you haven't, you're thinking about somebody for Christmas, it's not too early to pick that up. A great gift. And the Book of the Month, speaking of great gifts, 30 Marian Eucharistic Visits Adoring Jesus with His Mother by our good friend Donna Marie Cooper O'Boyle combines two great interests of our audience, the Eucharist and the Blessed Mother. So check that out. Of course, adoration is so important to Mother Angelica and certainly important to the Church as we're seeing in the year of the Eucharist as we're looking at next summer. With that, we speak with Father Robert Spitzer, who himself will be speaking at that Eucharistic event next summer. Right, Father? Uh, absolutely, in Indianapolis, certainly, and also uh, in the one in Charlotte uh, subsequent to that. So okay, okay. Uh, there, I'm going to be at uh, both, uh, both events. Okay, great. If you want to kick things off, as you always do with a prayer, that'd be great. Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us, the blessing especially of this ministry and our ability to serve in it. We ask you to send your Holy Spirit down upon us now, Doug, myself, our whole audience and crew, so that everything we do and say will be uh, brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. And let's get to some news stories here. I'll get your reaction. A couple of interesting ones altogether, I thought it was sure. in looking through the news, having to do with marriage and the concern about the dropping in the number of people getting married. A couple of uh, stories mm -hmm. and statistics. Uh, one study came out, uh, I think this was Pew, and the article is from the Washington Times. I thought this part was interesting. More than three times as many U.S. adults, 71%, rated an enjoyable job or career as more central to happiness than being married, which scored 23%, and it is Pew. More than twice as many adults said having close friends was more important to fulfilling life than, than having children and a survey of over 5,000 people. Some interesting uh, comments there. Uh, and here's another story that this one uh, picked up uh, as well. And this one was actually from the Washington Post of all places. But a uh, person writes an article said, uh, children will benefit if we face this certain fact. Marry, married 
parents are the ideal, as we've been talking about, and obviously the church believes. Mm -hmm. They go on to say, if you want to build a healthy society in which everyone has the best possible chance to flourish, we need to be able to say that bad things are bad. We have to talk about family structure. The evidence is overwhelming that the decline of marriage over the past few decades has been very bad for children and for extension for society mm -hmm. for various reasons. However, this truth is often left unsaid. And they said, no matter how heroic their efforts, they go on to say, mothers or fathers alone cannot muster the resources, emotional as well as financial, as can a two-parent family. One of the best predictors of economic mobility is growing up in a neighborhood full of two-parent families. Yet the same report suggests, in line with the polls, that today only 30% of college-educated ed liberals agree that it's important for children to have two married parents. And they say that much of this is because they're concerned about saying something that might be racially loaded because black and Hispanic mothers are more likely to be raising children outside marriage and might also feel like conceding that social conservatives might actually have been right about something. Your thoughts? Yeah. Oh, I totally agree with uh, both articles. I have to say that, um, uh, of course, that was 30% of liberals mm -hmm. uh, agree that um, two-parent two families are uh, no more privileged than only one-parent families. But uh, the sociological data over the last 30 years is absolutely conclusive. Two-parent families give rise to children who are more emotionally stable, morally solidified, mm -hmm. uh, have better interrelationships with civil society, are more contributive, that is to say they want to give back to their society and have uh, themselves a better view of marriage. Uh, if you want to see the criminal, uh, the rates of criminality mm -hmm. decrease within a culture, two-parent families are excellent for that, and we have to return right back to this right. old tradition because there's no question about it. We're not just talking about somewhat better. Mm -hmm. We're talking about significantly better. We're talking about, you know, doubling and tripling of, you know, uh, emotional stability. What I mean by that is an absence of depression, anxiety, substance abuse, antisocial aggressivity, etc. Mm -hmm. So when you see somebody who has very high levels of depression, anxiety, antisocial aggressivity, even suicidal contemplation, substance abuse, etc., and familial tensions as well, when you see that, that probably means that the person is less stable emotionally and, of course, less happy interiorly. And uh, when that happens, people seek these other things like substance abuse or violence or other kinds of things. The other thing that is clearly the case, too, is that religion helps all of those things. And where, you know, where the family uh, goes and, and if religion goes with it, and we know that religion is the number one factor right underneath you know the intention to have a permanent exclusive relationship with a spouse that's number one number two right mm -hmm. after is religion for promoting a satisfying and long-lasting marriage so when the two things are combined mm -hmm. religion uh, it, itself all by itself religion promotes very high emotional stability without religion there's significantly higher rates again of depression, anxiety, suicidal contemplation, suicides, uh, you know, a drug, um, a substance abuse, et cetera, et cetera. So all of these things, and you put family and religion together, which mutually reinforce each other, as mm -hmm. the Thornton studies show, 
then pretty much you have a very stable society to look forward to. The children are likely to be emotionally stable mm -hmm. and also morally and civilly stable because where religion is, so also moral stability is higher. The likelihood of um, doing the, the right thing at the time of a moral decision mm -hmm. is very high as well with a religious person compared with a non-religious person. So you put all of these facts together your society, your culture, not just the children, certainly the children, right. but also the parents, the spouses themselves. And also, if you want to know where people get their best friends from, oftentimes it's from their religion, their churches, mm -hmm. is where their friendships are long-lasting, uh, friendships that are based on higher values, that are based on long-term values, not just very temporary pleasures, euphoria, drugs, etc. Mm -hmm. If you get, if you look at those long-term friendships, you will see that they come right from churches and also from uh, church schools. Right, right. So, for example, if you have Catholic schools, or even for that matter, a Protestant uh, school, mm -hmm. the parents of those children going to that school, they become very good friends with one another for a lifetime, and the statistics studies show this. So when you put all the stuff together, um, you know, not only do religion and, and family go hand in hand, but um, good religion and family go hand in hand, not just with mm -hmm. uh, a religious identity and spiritual health, but very definitely with emotional health, relational health, and long-standing marriages. And um, of course, the children will be the immediate beneficiaries and the deep beneficiaries of that. And the society and culture will be the secondary mm -hmm. beneficiaries from that. I think this should be shouted from the rooftops because the decline in marriage signals the decline mm -hmm. not only of religion, it signals the decline also of all of the emotional uh, health of, of, of a culture, as right. well as the moral health of a culture, as well as this interaction with civil mm -hmm. society, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. And, and actually another article, in, in the, actually published in the New York Times, an opinion piece, um, was also talking uh -huh. about what was going on in marriage. And this person said uh, about the, the shift is often not publicly challenged, similar to what I said earlier, or lamented an effort to be inclusive of a diversity of family arrangements. But this well-meaning acceptance obscures the critical reality that this change is hurting our children's society. And this part was also, and you alluded to it just before, boys especially from homes without dads present particularly yep. prone, uh, are particularly prone to getting in trouble in school or with law. And we obviously are seeing that lived out uh, writ large uh, uh, in, the, uh, in mm -hmm. the stories and news virtually all the time. Uh, and again, nobody wants mm -hmm. to, as they say here, stigmatize single mothers who are doing the best that they can, but because they're stuck in that situation doesn't mean we should be promoting the fact that that's the ideal situation. And here was another question. I want your response on this. We need to work more to understand why so many American parents are raising their children without a second parent in the home. Why do you think that is? Well, uh, I, well, first of all, cohabitation is a huge reason. Mm -hmm. uh, as I have said on many programs, cohabitation uh, is not a good path to marriage. I know a lot of younger people believe that, but the longer you cohabitate, um, the more likely you are to have a shorter marriage and a less satisfying marriage if you get married at all. In other words, the marriage rate uh, decreases 
when cohabitation increases because cohabitation leads to a string of relationships that maybe might have been intended toward marriage in the future but never quite reached it. So the increase in cohabitation rates is almost directly correlative with the, um, the uh, decrease in marriages in the culture. And furthermore, even if a couple does get married, the longer they cohabitate, they, they transfer the stresses, they transfer the gender asymmetry, they transfer the sliding effect, they transfer the non-intentionality toward permanent exclusive commitment into the marriage. And so the marriage lasts a much shorter uh, time and it is much less satisfying. Mm -hmm. um, the religious rate has already declined. Cohabitation leads directly to a decline in religious commitment and religious practice. Again, I've cited those university studies from North Carolina and um, you know, Bowling Green, et cetera, mm -hmm. before. And you can pretty much see, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's a cohabitation. The increase in cohabitation in our culture has been a disaster area. And again, a disaster for children because it was a disaster for marriages. Disastrous, especially for boy children mm -hmm. who are, you know, the increase in criminality. You know, before COVID, over, over a 10 year period, there was an increase in homicides, mostly from boys, mm -hmm. uh, increase in homicides by 24%. Post-COVID, that, uh, COVID, that's almost doubling. So all I can tell you is uh, this is coming, uh, you know, pretty much from uh, the lack of a father figure within the family. And, of course, we've already discussed that mm -hmm. the lack of a father figure within the family leads to a decline in religious commitment as well. Mm -hmm. So we're looking, you know, as the New York Times. I mean, this is the New York Times. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, uh, generally, I don't agree uh, all, okay. the, all together with them, uh, you know, but uh, in this particular case, I, I must say, I heartily agree that um, there is a direct correlation mm -hmm. between um, the climate marriage and so forth. But cohabitation, I think, is the mm -hmm. primary factor. But there's a leading factor that stands in the background of cohabitation, and that was the sexual revolution. Because with the sexual revolution, with you know the uh, uh, the advent uh, not just of the birth control pill, but the non-committedness of sexuality that came with mm -hmm. the birth control pill. That's the real thing. You know, there was almost a direct correlation there that, you know, the birth control pill comes on the scene, sexuality is divorced from permanent long-standing commitment, divorced from family, divorced from emotional intimacy. And emotional intimacy is a huge deal in marriage. I don't have to tell anybody who's married that this is the case. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's not about sex, it's about emotional intimacy. And cohabitation takes a big shotgun and puts it right into the middle of um, emotional intimacy development. And it's, it's terrible, it's absolutely terrible. And so I think, you know, the two trends the divorcing of, of sexuality from commitment, the, co the increasing rate of cohabitation, it has led not only to the decline in marriages and the decline in marital commitment, mm -hmm. but the much quicker rate of divorce. It's not just the divorce rate itself, that's, pretty, that's still 50%, mm -hmm. but now the divorces come fast and quick. And then the, the third thing is, it's leading to a significant increase in depression, anxiety, suicidality, et cetera. So all of these things are kind of happening at once. And you know, the children are absolutely suffering from it. 
but the culture is getting killed because of it. I mean, you know, you talk about, you know, imploding from within. You know, the old Roman Empire, they, you know, Gibbon said was, hey, you know, it suffered from decline, uh, you know, in their mores, suffered, uh, uh, you know, an interior implosion. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. Right. Uh, look at us. Right. We're following right down the Gibbon uh, Roman Empire line. Right. And, and, and so all I can say is... Uh, and yeah. the strength of the Roman Empire so much in the early days was the centrality of the family, even though it might have been treated in, yeah. a, in a kind of odd way from our perspective. But for that time, yeah. the, the family was fairly sacrosanct. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. So, okay. And now, of course, uh, uh, we're, we're driving that you know, right. wedge in that um, you know, family relationship and unity really much more significantly than the Roman Empire did. So get ready for a, a bit of a cultural implosion unless right. by immigration uh, or some other introduction of a more family-centric right. viewpoint we can rescue our culture. Right. Um, and maybe immigration is the answer. I, I don't know, but we need to introduce a family-centric uh, culture back in, right. uh, into the United States. and. Um, whatever means we can do it will be the healthier for the culture itself. Absolutely. Here's another story. This is uh, from the New York Post reporting on a study from an associate professor of medicine at NYU Langone Health. And his uh, gentleman's name is uh, Dr. Pornia. He's the lead author of a study published this week in the Journal of Resuscitation yeah. that studied brain activity yeah. and awareness among 53 patients. You know the study or are you familiar with this? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so he said mm -hmm. of the 53 surviving patients, I figured this was right up your alley, uh, patients in the mm -hmm. study almost 40% reported having memories or conscious thoughts. Patients in the study asked that their identities not be revealed obviously for privacy reasons. He says there is a narrative arc in people who are having near-death experience, he said. Uh, common themes their consciousness becomes heightened, more vivid and sharp. They have a 360 degree awareness of the space around them. This sounds familiar, right? In that mm -hmm. state of awareness, mm -hmm. they're often observing doctors and nurses working to save their lives, but their observation is completely placid and free of uh, fear or distress. Uh, many people, they report, mm -hmm. actually do see their lives pass before their eyes, much like the stories that we've heard over the years. Mm -hmm. He says, somehow in death, mm -hmm their entire life comes to the fore. It's a deep, purposeful, and meaningful reevaluation of their lives. He said another common mm -hmm. theme is the sense of arriving at a place that feels utterly familiar like home, somewhere that they feel they recognize and are going back to. And he said what's interesting is that it is universal in the U.S. and in other countries. Yep. And he says That's they're right. not so hallucinations. And he makes the final point, these are not hallucinations. Yeah. These are very real experiences that occur, occur in death. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, that, um, uh, that is a summary of a very extensive study okay. done by Samuel Parnia and many other authors. Uh, he also uh, was one of the principals for the New York Academy of Sciences um, uh, article that uh, peer-reviewed many other articles mm -hmm. uh, that were presented in medical journals on near-death experiences. The main thing to remember there is that when brain activity is brought almost to a, 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 you know, a zero point, flat EEG, mm -hmm fixed and dilated pupils, no gag reflex, right? And you have a few sputterings of neurons in the lower brain. Uh, at that point, 
um, where basically no thinking can occur, right? Mm -hmm. If you don't have any electrical activity in the cerebral or frontal cortices, I mean, it's all over, baby. So, I mean, uh, you're not going to be doing any thinking yet, as Parting is saying, mm -hmm. uh, during this moment, um, there is clear evidence from testimony that is given by these patients, including blind patients, mm -hmm. that shows that they can actually report mm -hmm. vertical data. Now, what he's saying about hallucinations there is very important mm -hmm. because hallucinations are generally not accurate. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing about hallucinations. The second thing is uh, a hallucinating brain is exceedingly accurate. No, is exceedingly active, excuse active. me. So okay. uh, you have very active, sorry, I, I misspoke. So the basic thought is that if you have, um, you know, a hallucination, your brain's going to be registering that in the frontal cortices, in, in, the, um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, um, in the cerebral cortis, uh, cortex, et cetera, et cetera. And at the same time, you're going to uh, see, a, you know, a huge amount of uh, emphasis in, the, mm -hmm. um, in various other lobes of the brain. Mm -hmm. and and now during a near-death experience, it's just the opposite. You have almost zero brain activity altogether. So first of all, you know, hallucinations require brain activity. Uh, in near-death experiences, you don't have brain activity. But the most, you know, two other important points are that with hallucinations, you have all kinds of weird stuff that's reported, right? I mean, t totally inaccurate, totally skewed. You know, it's like, you know, mm -hmm. things are wavering. It's like, a, you know, not an LSD trip, but right. pretty, pretty inaccurate stuff and weird stuff going on. Where near-death experiences, as Parney makes clear, they're very accurate, veridically, that is to say, validated after the fact, um, uh, experiences. And then uh, thirdly, um, near-death experiences are very peaceful. Mm -hmm. Hallucinations are oftentimes non-peaceful, mm -hmm. very agitated, very fear-filled. So they're just kind of opposite. So what Parney is saying there at, at the end mm -hmm. is that, no, no, I mean, what, what these people are reporting is not being produced by the physical brain. Mm. It, it couldn't be produced by the physical brain. And so what's left is you must have some kind of a thinking apparatus. You must have something akin to a soul where your consciousness right. actually resides when your physical body is clinically dead. So there has to be you know, some kind of um, you know, cent central area of thinking, of remembering, of self-consciousness, etc., that continues to exist besides the cerebral cortex and the frontal cortex. There's got to be something else. Mm -hmm. And so uh, um, that something else, by the way, uh, can oftentimes be way beyond where the physical body is. As I've reported right. before, could be outside the hospital, could be in this other domain called home, right? And of course, in the other domain called home, when they see deceased relatives and when they see this very loving white light, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera, uh, or sometimes, um, you know, in 15% of the cases, they have very dark experiences. Mm -hmm. And in Parnia's study, it seems that the dark experiences are more than 
than 15 percent. Really? Um, okay. So there, you know, a little, yeah. Uh, so there could be more than that. But uh, for all intents and purposes, I think Parney has given a very good summary of a phenomenon that no, not only gives significant evidence for a transphysical soul that can survive bodily de death, but also for an afterlife, mm -hmm. and even an afterlife that could either be pleasant or dark. Right. Okay, very good. Let's get on to uh, the questions people have been sending us in so we can get caught up on those. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, I did want to mention one other thing before we did that. Just, mm -hmm. uh, I think, uh, the blood of the martyr of St. Januarius, again, liquefied in Naples yesterday on September 19th. Mm -hmm. um, and so it usually happens on this day or two mm -hmm. other occasions during the year. They believe the miracle first took place in 1389. So uh, just another uh, okay. interesting uh, thing mm -hmm. for us to think about in the, in the world of what's beyond what we normally expect, right? So, right, right. <laughs> Dear Father Spitzer, I have a friend who uses natural law to excuse things like homosexual behavior and transgenderism because there are plenty of animals that display homosexual behavior in certain species of fish and other lower animals that can change their sex. Then, according to natural law, humans should be allowed to do the same. I tried explaining that natural law and the law of nature are not really the same thing, but I'm not doing a very good job of it. Can you help me, Robert? Yeah, Robert, uh, you're absolutely right about the distinction. A law of nature is very different from the way that, for example, St. Thomas Aquinas or Francisco mm -hmm. Suarez would have used uh, the term natural law. What they meant um, by natural law was, first of all, a human being's um, you know, intrinsic awareness, you know, let's call it mm -hmm. syndaresis. We call it maybe today conscience, mm -hmm. where you have a sense of what is right and what is wrong. It's not just an intellectual concept or construction of what is right and wrong, but an actual, as um, St. Thomas Aquinas put it, do good. So when you sense that something is good and noble, you are drawn to it. When you sense that something is ignoble or sinful or evil, that you are repulsed from it. Uh, that's why, of course, it's so difficult for a criminal to begin the criminal path unless they're a sociopath, right? Mm -hmm. They have to get over the fact that they fear, they have fear, they have disgust, they have shame, they have a sense of ignobility, uh, you know, um, ignobleness when they're uh, pulling the trigger for the first mm -hmm. time or something. But um, uh, basically, do, you know, other animals have it? No, they don't have it. Animals mm -hmm. do not have a sense of conscience whatsoever. Now, there's a lot of studies <clears throat> that have been done on this, and uh, but <clears throat> I think you can pretty much imagine, um, you know, that most animals are not racked with guilt. Mm -hmm. Secondly, in order for conscience to work, you have to have what's called self-consciousness. <clears throat> you have to be aware of your awareness. You have to grasp yourself, mm -hmm. right, as an autonomous moral agent, and that you are responsible to what your con uh, for mm -hmm. what your conscience is dictating. So, you know, that uh, voice, as it were, that is speaking to you from within. Well, if animals don't have self-consciousness, 
And animals don't have that sense of being uh, drawn to the good or repulsed by evil mm -hmm. in the sense that they can be racked with guilt mm -hmm. if they commit evil or filled with nobility when they do something good, mm -hmm. right? They're racked with shame on the one hand or they're racked with that sense of uh, dignity and respect for self. <coughs> on the other hand, <coughs> when you put all those things together, it's pretty clear that um, from the vantage point of animals, they don't have it. Now, why does that um, make your friend's argument uh, pretty much a bad argument? Mm -hmm. We call it equivocation in logic. Mm -hmm. When you use uh, uh, the same term, like law of nature, natural law, when you try to use that in two very different senses in the same argument, Mm -hmm. That gives rise generally to a false conclusion. You can't derive a true conclusion from an equivocal use of the term natural law. Mm -hmm. And so that invalidates his argument. In other words, you're using the term natural law like St. Thomas did, right? Mm -hmm. That sense of conscience, that sense of self-conscious responsibility uh, to what conscience is dictating, that sense of, of being, you know, uh, uh, you know, knowing, I should say, and mm -hmm. being drawn to very specific goods like don't kill, don't commit adultery, etc., versus, you know, um, being good and being mm -hmm. just, etc. So you, you know, those those acts that are filled, laden, not just with emotion, but with a sense of my own, you know, being at home with myself or alienated from myself, uh, attached to it, and also for religious people being at home with God and alienated from God. Animals just plain don't have it. When we talk about a law of nature, we talk about, uh, in, in animals, we talk about the, the whole area of instincts, which are not free, which are not self-conscious, which are programmed into the animal. Very, very different from my moment of choice in my self-consciousness when I say, am I going to do the will of God or am I going to do what I'm, you know, violate this commandment which will get me something I want? Am I going to do the just thing or, you know, for the sake of this person or am I going to do the unjust thing to get mm -hmm. what I want? I have to make a choice. I'm always presented by my conscience with a choice between what is good versus what I want to satisfy me right now. You know, and so basically, animals are not confronted with that. So when your friend is trying to, to make a parallel there mm -hmm. uh, between the laws of nature, which are programmed instincts, versus the idea of natural law, which requires a choice mm -hmm. in response to one's conscience, in response to one's, um, you know, uh, uh, belief in the good versus evil. Right. Uh, it's an equivocation par excellence. So just tell them, hey, right. that's an equivocal argument. By definition, that doesn't work. You get an F in your logic class. Mm -hmm. Well, one quick question. We got about 45 seconds before we go to the break. Do you seem okay. like it, we see some of the crime going on these days uh, in the headlines, at least, and maybe it's mm -hmm. it's just because we see have more access to it. But there seems to be this kind of mm -hmm. lack of conscience and lack of guilt in the kind of way certain you know people getting beaten up for virtually appears to be no reason. Or a recent story where these these young men drove into the back of uh, a person riding a bicycle just for the heck of it and then ended up killing them. And apparently the, the remorse, there's no remorse.
Yeah. Well, that is what we call generally sociopathic right, behavior. Right. So if you if you basically look at uh, you know um, uh, you know the psychiatric definitions for that in the manual right of psychiatric disorders, etc. If you look at um, that, when somebody doesn't feel any remorse or any empathy, and by the way, both you know the remorse or guilt and empathy, they run hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Because when an, a person has a normal sense of empathy for the goodness, the lovability, the unique goodness, lovability, and transcendence of another human being, which they capture automatically. They don't <clears throat> have to articulate it like, like I articulated it. They basically just have a feeling of it, that right. this person is a uniquely good uh, and lovable and transcendent being, worthy of respect, worthy of my uh, taking care of right. them and, and, uh, and, and uh, treating them justly. If a person lacks that, they also lack remorse. Right. And if they lack empathy and remorse and guilt, uh, we generally call them sociopathic. Right. Uh, n normally, the sociopath uh, did not experience love from right. parents. And that still is a mm. predominant right. background checker. Right. Uh, you know, and, um, and that probably uh, fits into that, a lot of the okay. issues we're dealing today, as we mentioned earlier with marriage and, mm -hmm. the, and the absence of the father. Mm -hmm because a lot of that occurs yeah. obviously by young men. With that, mm -hmm. we're going to take a break. Much more ahead yeah. with Father Spitzer. Stay with us. More questions <laughs> ahead. As always, we appreciate you staying with us for part two of Father Spitzer's Universe. We'll continue with Father's book, The Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church, available through our catalog, of course. Once we uh, get through some more questions we have for Father and uh, dear Father Spitzer, what is happening with marriage? Some form of it has been around since the dawn of civilization, but if you read the headlines, very few people take marriage vows seriously and divorce seems always seems to be a viable option as the easy way out. I read a study where Gen Z no longer viewed marriage as something important to today's culture. Is marriage doomed? This kind of fits into the articles. It's interesting there's a lot being talked about there. This is from Ann. Well, Ann, I just uh, in the earlier part of the program I actually uh, talked about this, but I, I think there's two things going on. I think the increased rate of cohabitation mm -hmm. uh, leads to the illusion um, that um, somehow cohabitation is just as good as marriage. It is not. It's not just as, it's terrible for marriages as a matter of fact and I explained that earlier in the program and as a matter of fact it's terrible for children, it's terrible for uh, religious development, it's terrible for moral um, uh, development within both the spouses and the children and as a whole it's terrible for culture. Mm -hmm. So the, that's been a really bad thing but standing in the background of the increased rate of cohabitation is the sexual revolution which basically divorced um, mm -hmm. sexuality from commitment and family and children. Uh, people don't even know how precious the love of a child is. Mm -hmm. I mean they, they have no sense whatsoever of you know the huge bond of love and intimacy and of course I don't have to say if you undermine marriage you undermine long-term commitment you're gonna undermine emotional intimacy and if you undermine emotional intimacy what do you have left mm 
you have affection, that's good, that's mm. wonderful, but you're not going to have these mutually long-standing, uh, you know, reciprocal, self-sacrificial relationships. And, you and you know, what do you have? Affection and sex mm. and a few other kinds of convenient economic, uh, you know, relationships mm. and some other kinds of things. And is this emotional intimacy? No, it is not. And the longer you cohabitate, the more the emo emotional intimacy rate goes down, not mm -hmm. up. Because, mm -hmm. uh, of course, you're not using, you're not intending permanent exclusive commitment. Without mm -hmm. that intentionality and without religion, which is being weakened by the cohabitating relationship, you've got basically almost, you know, a, a doubling, triple the um, um, possibility of not ever getting married mm -hmm. uh, whatsoever. And if you do get married, of shortening the marriage, which is a very dissatisfying experience uh, to begin with. So it's, it's, to right. me, it's those two things. Uh, and and a, a bit also the decline of religion. So right. uh, the okay. decline of religion, the, the sexual revolution, right. All and basically of. the increased rate of cohabitation. Right. So, it's, well, it's a killer it's, uh, it's, trifecta. Uh, yeah, yeah, right, all interrelated. Dear Father Spitzer, why does the church require a civil divorce before a couple can uh, submit documents for an annulment? Getting an answer from the church before a civil divorce would save thousands of Catholic marriages. A good percentage of Catholics would find a way to stay together if annulment was not granted and the couple realized that they had a true sacramental marriage. This is Walter. Well, Walter, I think um, the annulment is, is granted to detect after the divorce is over mm. whether a commitment actually was there or not. So um, it really depends on a divorce, I mean, uh, essentially. So the idea is not to to see whether or not a commitment is there and then just get a divorce if it's not, you know. So uh, uh, in, in other words, you know, uh, if, if an annulment goes through, ah, go ahead and get a divorce. You know, the church wants, uh, you know, to use the annulment only in mm -hmm. the case, right, where a divorce already happened and now it's basically seeing if this person can get remarried again right, that's the um, issue, and right. at the same time return to the sacraments. So that's the real issue. So it's really a in light of divorce uh, procedure. Okay, another question. Dear Father Spitzer, as Catholics, we're called to be compassionate towards sinners. I fully agree as I, like everyone else, am a sinner too. But when do we cross the line from being compassionate to enabling someone in their sin? Michelle. Well, Michelle, you know what compassion um, towards sinners means uh, in, the, in Jesus's context is number one, forgiving the person from the heart. And of course, forgiveness means the intention to let go um, of a penalty. Now, forgiveness and compassion in the church never meant, um, number one, encouraging a person to be abusive or encouraging a person uh, in a terrible behavior uh, that would uh, cause anybody, uh, you know, to, to melt, uh, right? So first of all, that's, that's, secondly, forgiveness doesn't mean that you can't take self-defensive measures. Absolutely you can take self-defensive measures. The idea behind forgiveness is to let go of a penalty, um, you know, but mm -hmm. not to let go uh, of your own safety or to let go of, uh, you know, what my common sense would dictate would be things that you need to do to help a person mm -hmm. get control of themselves. So forgiveness is compatible with tough love. Mm -hmm. So um, it is compatible with saying, look, if you don't get your act together, right. I'm going to do X. 
you know, I'm going to be out of here. I, I'm not going to be talking with you anymore. Now, that doesn't mean if you're not talking to him, that doesn't mean you're getting retribution or vengeance. Mm -hmm. It just means you're protecting yourself or you're trying to discourage them right. from continuing in the conduct that's killing them. So forgiveness is this big, large concept, right. uh, uh, idea uh, in Christianity right. that really right. does have a proportionate amount of not encouraging the sinner, that uh, of encouraging the sinner toward repentance, right. and also of uh, taking defensive actions to protect yourself or your family. So you don't have to become a potted plant. Uh, you know, you you know that's not right. what forgiveness means. Forgiveness right. means taking an active role in helping the sinner, um, uh, but and also you know mo taking the moral high ground is a very different matter from saying I'm not going to continue uh, to indulge you in whatever habit right. it is right. that that's um, you know killing them and causing them to become a ne'er do well or mm -hmm. whatever. Right. Right. It's also sometimes, you know, I always got the impression that forgiveness came also from somebody who was saying that they were sorry and you're forgiving them. That, But if a person does yeah. something and they're not sorry about it, are, are you obligated to forgive them for something they're not sorry for? Uh, yeah, Jesus says, pretty much would say, you know, you, you know, even though there isn't sorrow on the part of that person, mm -hmm. you still should try to, to forgive them from the heart. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's trying to say, uh, that doesn't mean, as I said, you know, becoming a potted plant. Mm -hmm. it, it basically means, you know, at the end of the day, I'm going to try to encourage this person to change their lives. I'm not going to hang around with them if they're, you know, in some way undermining me or my family or whatever it might be. But he does say, you know, we should even, uh, you know, in the case where Pope John Paul, right, you know, here's a guy who shot him mm -hmm. way before the guy ever apologized, John okay. Uh, John Paul forgave him right. years before, and I think when he visited him right, he did, years right. later in his right. cell, right. the the guy actually I think did apologize, apologize right. um, but that was much after the fact. Right. Okay. Very good. Let's get yeah. to uh, to the book, page twenty nine on the top. Conviction about transcendent meaning in life depends in uh, in a great part on intellectual conviction about the existence of God a personal God who is perfect truth, perfect goodness, perfect love, and perfect beauty, a God who is interested in the transcendent beings. Do you think part of the problem mm -hmm. today is people have lost sight of, of a personal God? They kind of, you know, it's like the force or something? Uh, well, you know, that certainly is a big part of it, although I think what's happening today is two things are undermining belief in God in general, mm -hmm. uh, personal or otherwise, even a deistic God. And I think what's happening first is uh, I think scientism has, you know, even though Dawkins has changed his mind and mm -hmm. become an agnostic instead of an atheist and so forth, and mm -hmm. many of the people who started this whole movement have moved in a much more positive direction toward God, mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately a lot of people have been taken in 
and they will say things like, I don't believe in God, I believe in science, as if science were somehow disproving God, when in point of fact, as I said, mm -hmm. young scientists today, 66%, a supermajority of young scientists believe in God or a higher transcendent power, according to the last Pew survey. Now you look at that and you just go, wow, mm -hmm. well, the scientists are getting you know, more and more closer to God. Well, why is that? Because there's more scientific evidence for God, the soul, the afterlife, uh, for uh, even Jesus today mm -hmm. than ever before. So you look at this and you go, hey, wait a minute. You know, um, if, if this is uh, taking place, then why do people still think that, you know, science mm -hmm. and God are somehow, you know, uh, contradictories? And uh, the reason is, is because they're picking it up in the culture. They're picking it up by people who want to manipulate them mm -hmm. out of their religious commitment so they can manipulate them towards some other mode of conduct, et cetera, et cetera. They have a cultural agenda on their mind mm -hmm. that is antithetical to conscience or religion. And you get the, the point. Mm -hmm. But, you know, essentially, I think the first thing is there's a deliberate undermining of God in the culture. I think the second thing is there's a deliberate undermining of religion in the culture. And the reason for that is because religion carries with it um, what I would call traditional morals. Uh, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't kill, don't harm people, you know, um, intentionally. Now, today, we, we, we really prefer the Gordon Gecko model, uh, you know, of, of greed is good, uh, you know, and also cheating, lying, and stealing is good uh, so long as, um, you know, uh, you can minimize mm -hmm. the harm you did by it. But, of course, you can't ever predict mm -hmm. that when you let you know a harmful lie or right. you know you steal somebody's uh, goods whatever they are you steal from a rich person you steal from a poor person it's stealing you know the, the point is you start letting this stuff go out the window and the next thing you know is um, uh, uh, you basically are going to have a real tough time living and your conscience mm -hmm. is going to disturb you there's little wonder as I point out again and again and again in moral wisdom mm -hmm. you disobey these cardinal laws of conscience the depression rate triples the, the anxiety rate triples I mean you, you know you think oh I can go out it's a victimless sin I can go out and live a promiscuous lifestyle with whoever I want to live a promiscuous well it, you're gonna pay for it mm -hmm. you know adulterers really do have increased depression anxiety rate. The, the longer more often you read pornography and, and the more addicted you become to it the, the higher your depression rate and by the way the lower your religious participation etc mm -hmm. etc et so all these things you start putting them together and yes of course there's a deliberate uh, you know um, uh, a, a attempt on the part of not just culture but Madison Avenue mm -hmm. there's a deliberate part uh, a point that is made to undermine religion to undermine morals to undermine conscience within the culture and, and the reason you know for that undermine God in the culture because then you can settle people in what I have called previously level two identity and level one identity. If people are really fastened on to level four identity, which is God, and level three identity, which is contributing to the other, then of course, the level two and level three are gonna get short shrift. Mm -hmm. But if you wanna sell something to somebody, if you wanna sell ego and narcissism to somebody, if you wanna sell cars and houses and goods and luxuries and um, you know, so forth. If you want to sell that, you know, that uh, selfie culture to somebody, you got to get them nestled back into level two and one. Right. And of course, the culture is definitely doing that. Right. And Instagram, Facebook are, is right there at the head. They play right
right into right. Uh, you know the, the the culture of greed, the culture of narcissism, as and, Christopher Lambert put sense, it. Yeah, in a sense, they they rely on that depression, that upsetment, so that they can offer you this thing that's going to solve all your problems. Well, yeah, absolutely. Right. Uh, you'll feel a lot better if you take the heroin. Right. Uh, because I know you're depressed right now, but you're depressed because of the narcissism I convinced you to, to believe in because right, I undermined right. your religious belief right. and I undermined your love right. of, of family and, and others. Yeah. So now the you, new car, you, you, the new house, narcissism like you and you're said. depressed. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. that'll well, help you. Yeah. And by the way, don't forget the Chateau Margot 1963. Okay. Yeah, yeah I'm sorry, I forgot <laughs> that the last time I saw you. Uh, but anyway, uh, I hope you didn't drink it yet. Couldn't afford uh, it if I wanted to. <laughs> So, uh, in the evidence for the Christian perspective, you say, if Jesus truly is the divine Son, then we are called to obey lovingly His Word transmitted through the New Testament and His church. So, with that being the case, either people say, well, Jesus was a great guy, but He really wasn't the Son of God, or Jesus is so merciful that He understands whatever I'm doing and He loves me no matter what, so it's really kind of okay. Yeah, well, of course, Jesus is merciful. I don't want to decrease that. Mm -hmm. What I do want to say in the same breath is Jesus warns us again and again and again and again and says, look, I'm telling you, if you go down this path, if you stop following me, if you just keep walking down this path of darkness, if you keep putting yourself right into the grip of the evil spirit, if you keep getting these habits of sin, you know, the idea of calling upon my mercy? You think you're going to do that at the last minute? You really think if you're filled with anger and pride and indignation or lust or whatever it is that's got you virtually at the point of addiction, virtually at the point, uh, you know, where, you, you know, you think you're this autonomous agent that can do anything you want, you think you're going to turn to me at the last minute? I'm telling you right now, you are looking the evil spirit. You're looking at, you know, the father you have followed all this time. You don't think he's going to come back and collect the bill? He's going to come back and collect the bill. And Jesus, of course, believed in the evil spirit. Anybody who tells you he didn't has certainly not read the New Testament with any kind of, you know, not even done a cursory uh, look at the New Testament. Jesus' whole mission, right, mm -hmm. is, is integral, integrally related to defeating Satan in order to bring the kingdom of God to this world. Mm -hmm. And so what's Jesus saying? Follow my teaching. Repent. That means firm purpose of amendment too. Be following him, believing in the good news, yes. But what does he say first? Repent and believe in the good news. And what does repentance mean? It means a change of heart. It means that I'm going to try to follow the Lord with all his teaching, his moral teaching, with all my heart, because he's telling me mm -hmm. these things for my own good. Because if I don't follow these things, I'm going to follow another spirit. And if I keep following that other spirit, I will become persuaded by that other spirit. And that other spirit will ultimately tell me after, you know, and this is what you know, the spiritual director after spiritual director, spiritual teacher after spiritual teacher says, you start following that holy, that evil spirit, and then you follow him long enough, and then you want to turn to Jesus at the last minute, mm -hmm. which of course I encourage you to do, absolutely, with one second to go, turn to Jesus. But here's the problem. 
that evil spirit's going to come right back at you and he's going to say, you little wretch, who do you think you are? You think God's really going to take you back now? He's going to pour everything he can mm -hmm. right into your ear. You're going to feel like running away, not running toward mm -hmm. God. Mm -hmm. In the very moment you need to be running toward him, turning to him in repentance with tears, you won't do it. You're going to be convinced that you're done for anyway. Mm -hmm. And that's what the evil, you know, I'm not saying you will be. I'm begging you to go back to, to Christ even at the last minute. However, just think, just know this. You will have the evil spirit at your elbow and he's going to be telling you. He's going to be speaking straight into your ear. You're a wretch. You're a boor. He'll never take you back. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're going to get poured in. And if, you know, if, if lust is your problem, he's mm -hmm. going to say, you're not going to turn away from all of this, are you? You know, you go to heaven, you're going to be playing harps. You're going to do something <laughs> like that. Right. You really want this. Or you're going to, he's going to be speaking it, whatever it is. But, right. you know, you think you're going to have these kind of luxuries? You're going to have your Mercedes 500E class and you're going to have the Chateau Margot uh, in, in heaven. You're going to have the harps. You're not going to have this good lifestyle. I'm telling you what I can give you. It's all lies, of course. It's all lies mm -hmm. because the minute you get to, 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 to his domain, to the evil spirit, even though he's promised you the, the life of Lee and the life of whatever it is you want, the pride, the anger, the power, the sex, the, the, the greed, the goods, the, you know, whatever it is he can promise you, he'll promise you. And then the minute you get there, what you get is darkness, emptiness, alienation, loneliness. Because, of course, without God, we're an absolute nothing. Our identity is granted nothing. There's a vacuousness and the loneliness that comes in its way. So what I'm trying to say is the reason Jesus is saying this is Jesus, doesn't, you know, he's not saying this to threaten people and to be mean. Mm. The reason he says wailing and grinding of teeth is he's trying to say this is really important. Listen up, guys. He's trying to say, I'm telling you, follow me now and do your best to follow me now. Then in the, when you get to your dying day, contrition, that will come naturally and freely from you. You will be, at, you know, you're not going to be perfectly in the light of Christ when you die. I certainly won't be. I'm happy, as I said, you know, to, to be my imperfect little soul. But I think at the end of the day, I will have the contrition and the tears to say at right. the end, oh, dear Lord, right. forgive me. Uh, you know, for the things that I have done. And I think he will forgive this very imperfect soul, uh, Robert Spitzer. But at the same time, mm -hmm. I think, he, you know, um, I will, ha you have to do the prep work. Right. You have to try and follow him. The sacraments are so essential, to, like the Eucharist that breaks the grip of the evil spirit, uh, confessions mm -hmm. that break the grip of the evil spirit. These are the graces that we really need. Mm -hmm. And so at the, at the end of the day, you know, uh, don't don't ever say the mercy of God will be sufficient. Right. It's not about the mercy of God being sufficient. It's about you choosing it when the devil is at your elbow, when you've mm -hmm. chosen a life of darkness, followed him into his false promises. And remember what the baptismal vows say. Do you reject Satan and all his works and all his empty promises? Right. And that's the thing. The sacraments help us. Following Jesus' moral teaching is always helping us. We're preparing ourselves for a very good death and for that good act of contrition. And then, of course, in the moment of repentance, we choose him. And, uh, you know, don't depend on, you know, a life of darkness and then going to be a switchback. Right. You know, you might be able to do it, and I encourage you, if you can, to do it and don't listen to the lies of the devil. 
but right. please, above all, please, don't don't go that route. Right. It's just going to lead, you know, it's too too great of a chance right. that it will lead not only to darkness right. in this life, but darkness in the eternal next right. life. Right. You find yourself with a hardening of heart. You don't even want to make that decision. So, yeah. you know, that can happen, oh, yeah. too. Yeah. So with that being said, we're just mm -hmm. out of time. So if you could give us your blessing, oh. Father, for our way out the door, that'd be great. Absolutely. Bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may the Lord, who is truly loving and filled with consolation, may that Lord's wisdom be in your heart so that you might discern his will for you, his will for the world, his will and his moral teaching, which will lead you into the eternal, eternal kingdom of goodness, of love, which is the eternal kingdom of joy and peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. As always, be well. We shall see you next week, and we'll see all of you next week. And don't forget that Father Spitzer's books and DVDs are always available in our EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com, for all things Catholic. Next week, we'll be answering viewer questions, so look forward to that. That's always fun. EWTN Bookmark uh, this weekend is The Sacred Quest by our good friend, Father Cedric Pesenia. Check out that book. Always interesting. And we've got the Solemn Mass in honor of Padre Pio from the Shrine of St. Pio in Petrolicina in San Giovanni, Rotundo, so Italy, and that's, that's always a popular event here. Friday at 11 p.m. Eastern Time, Padre Pio. I'm Doug Keck. Thank you so much for joining us. We shall see you next time when we re-enter Father Spitzer's universe. Be well to them.